Radio Mano Papachango. going out there i'm coming to you from topanga canyon my old haunt outside of la made it back here uh landed in la what a couple days ago i'm jet lagged as fuck i've been awake before dawn every morning like a goddamn fisherman uh don't love that and and it's just being jet lagged is a weird feeling it's weird it's like being stoned on cough syrup or something like like it's you can't think straight and you can't remember what you're talking about two minutes ago it's definitely a debilitating situation but uh yeah we got the van back yesterday and uh sort of you know if it were a boat we'd be down at the dock sort of cleaning and getting the sails ready and all that so we're sort of getting everything organized it's been wow close to a year since we've been on board so that's gonna be fun uh we're gonna leave here uh, in a few days head to colorado see some friends out in crestone and then uh roll north through wyoming into montana and we'll be up there to teach that workshop with the Budokan folks uh, in early in early September and then we'll be wandering around after that so if you're in the Pacific Northwest or Rocky Mountain region uh, we might see you stay tuned and I'll, I'll let you know where we are what's going on or you know watch my uh, Instagram feed if you do Instagram and uh, you'll see where we are and, and where we're headed and hopefully we'll run into you somewhere out there in the wild blue yonder. Um, I wanted to let you know a couple of things. First of all, this episode is with Katie Halper. She's co-host of the Useful Idiots podcast, formerly with Matt Taibbi and now with uh, Aaron Mate, Gabor Mate's son. Uh, I was just on their podcast recently and um, I had uh, Katie on this one mostly talking about politics. She's a political commentator. But we also talked about uh, her background as an activist, as a filmmaker, as a stand-up comic, um, as a writer, journalist in various ways, and, and how she got into the situation she's in now where she's interviewing uh, politicians and journalists and, and sort of immersed in the news of the day. I think... I feel like I'm already too immersed in the news of the day. I got to de-immerse, demerse. I'm not sure what the opposite of immerse is. Extract myself from the news of the day. It's it's overwhelming sometimes. I'm looking forward to getting out in the desert and not reading and not paying attention to stuff. One thing I have paid attention to recently is podcasts. I've been on planes and moving around um in a way that that I could listen to some podcasts and uh, I've mentioned it before but the podcast I'm really enjoying right now one of them is uh 
It's called Smartless. I think it's a dumb name, I have to say. I, I don't like the name of the podcast, but the rest of it I really like. It's uh, it's three friends uh, who are all actors. Uh, Sean, Sean, somebody who is in... Um, oh, shit. Now I can't, See, I wasn't planning to talk about this, and so I'm like the old man at the party who can't remember anything. Um, Jason Bateman, Sean Carroll, I think his name is and um uh, will arnett and they're clearly good friends they've known each other a long time i think i've talked about this before on the podcast um but it's really cool because they're i think the fact that it's the three of them um and they've known each other so long and so well it, it keeps it real in a way they they give each other shit in a loving way and it, it keeps anyone's ego from getting out of hand and um and it's really cool so the three of them will be talking with a guest and it's as if you're sitting at a table with these four you know hollywood people talking and they're talking about their careers and how they got into acting and um you know the challenges and the joys and all this and it's just really cool and it's not for me it's the, the appeal is not that these people are famous or make a lot of money or any of that shit. It's that they get to have this experience of creating something that's artistic and, you know, in, in the best cases, meaningful and beautiful. And they get to work with people who are really talented and intelligent. And I mean, it, I don't, I have to say, I'm kind of a curmudgeon, right? I'm kind of a grouchy old fuck at this point. And it's really nice when I find something that makes me feel positive about people and feel like, wow, they're actually really nice people. And they're lucky and they know they're lucky that they get to have this kind of thing. And I feel like I've been very lucky in my life in many ways. But one thing I've missed is I haven't had the experience of working with other people on something really cool and fun. Like I haven't, you know, made a movie or a TV show or, you know, that kind of theatrical community thing um, that, that people get to experience. Although there's a lot of heartbreak in that as well, because, you know, you hear about um, the, you know, I was just having lunch with my friend Simon Rex the other day and you know, he was talking about how he was shooting a movie in Mexico for a month. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name of it, so I'll avoid it. It's uh, something island that uh, should be coming out, I think, within within a year. Um, but anyway, he, uh, you know, he was talking about how cool it is to get to know these people. I think Christian Slater is is in the cast, and. Um, uh, yeah, a lot of people you've heard of. You'll hear about this movie when it comes out. But anyway, you get real close with people, and then it's over. And you might never see them again. And so it's it's like a repeated like intimacy and abandonment. Intimacy, abandonment, over and over and over. And, I mean, that can be rough. And you're also in a position where you, it's really hard to have ongoing personal relationships outside of work because you're away in Mexico for a month shooting a movie and then you're off to Iceland to shoot some Viking movie and then you're down there doing this TV show and then you're there. I mean, how do you have a, you know, a partner and, and 
any sort of continuity in that kind of life. So, um, so once again, it, it's one of those things where it's like, eh, I kind of wish I had had that experience, but on the other hand, I, I wouldn't have wanted to pay the price for it. It's, it's, that's the way life is. Right. Um, but anyway, uh, some really good episodes. Check it out. Smart, uh, smartless. Uh, so they're really interesting people. There was a very moving conversation they were having with Bradley Cooper, who, again, uh, they've been friends with for years. And, um, man, I, w I won't tell you too much about the conversation other than to say that uh, it, it's very vulnerable. And you can hear, you can hear somebody crying as they're as they're talking as they're talking about a particular experience um an interaction that bradley cooper had with will arnett i think um yeah wow it's really moving it's really touching and and really brings out what i think is one of the the best potentials of podcasts um which is to capture real intimacy real connection real moments of of friendship that that we're privileged to sit in on sometimes so anyway that's smartless hope you check it out another great podcast of course is daniele bolelli uh his podcast history on fire he does the drunken Taoist podcast where he speaks with people uh, i've been on there a few times um, and he does history on fire where he intensively researches a particular event or period or historical figure uh, goes in real deep and and tells a story as only Daniele can if you don't know about Daniele he's an awesome guy what a beautiful heart really sweet person one of my closest friends love the dude and uh, history on fire was behind a paywall he started a few years ago it it got very popular um, and then he, he did a deal with uh, Luminary, I think. I, I'm not sure I might be getting the name of that company wrong. Um, but they had the podcast sort of an exclusive basis. You had to sign up, subscribe to them and get it. And now that's over. And so he's um, new episodes are freely available to anyone. So if you used to listen to History on Fire and you kind of lost track of it uh, during the hiatus when he was behind the paywall, um, Check it out again. It's back out in the open, and Daniele is doing his doing his research and telling his stories. Man, history on fire. Yeah, Daniele Bolelli. Okay, and the last thing I want to say to you before I move on to the episode is that I keep forgetting to mention that um, each episode of the podcast has a, obviously a landing page at Substack, and there's an open comment section. So people go there and they talk about the, the episode. They talk about issues that are raised in the episode, whatever. And, uh, and it's nice. And somebody who was in the comment section uh, just recently said to me, Chris, you got to remind people that this exists. This is one of the coolest things that, you know, people come here and talk about the episode. And it's a place where you can do that. People have done that on Reddit, but a lot of people don't know how to use Reddit and it's intimidating, and I don't know how to fucking use Reddit. Um, but on Substack, it's very easy. So go to my Substack page, uh, Chris Ryan at dot substack dot com, and you'll see the episodes, and you can chime in. Or there's op also open threads for 
um, paying subscribers who can uh, talk about whatever they want. Every month I set up a new open thread. So, all right. Thank you for listening to this episode with yours truly, Dr. Fur and Katie Halper. All right, I'm going to play you out with a tune that I had forgotten about. I think I played it on the podcast years ago. I, I Actually, I know I did because I was talking with a guy named Clemens who I met in uh, Thailand, and then we saw each other again in Tbilisi, Georgia recently, and, and uh, he said something about, oh, I remember, you know, the first time I listened to your podcast, you played this really beautiful, strange song, and I don't remember the name, and... And we spent a few minutes sort of, you know, he was describing it and I was rooting around, uh, you know, in my playlist trying to figure out what he was talking about. And uh, and we finally came up with it. It's a tune called Come With Me. And the artist is the Idan Reichel Project. Uh, it was on a compilation, I guess, that I had. Um, it's And it's a really interesting, beautiful song sung in various languages I, th I think there might be french there might be arabic there's some english i'm not sure what else um anyway i hope you enjoy this tune it's it uh, takes you to an interesting place and i hope you enjoy this episode with katie halper uh, co-host of the useful idiots podcast very smart funny cool lady i don't know lady she's a woman i don't know lady to me is like an old older woman um but i hear you know once, twice, three times a lady, right? I guess, I don't know, how's, how does it feel to you? Is lady, to me, lady is like desexualized. But maybe that's just me. Hmm, not sure. In any case, come with me, Edan Rachel Project, followed by a conversation with Katie Halper. Thank you for listening to this. And uh, I hope you'll come join the comments on this episode or any other at uh, chrisryan.substack.com Be well, everybody.
Katie, thank you for for agreeing to do this. Uh, I never pass up a chance to grumble, grump about politics with uh, someone who does it for a living. What? Uh, how did Thanks you get into me. this? Um, how did I get into this? I mean, it's you were funny. you were stand up comedian, right? Yeah, I did stand up. I did. I always thought that I would become a lawyer and do like civil rights or human rights or immigration law, one of the you know less lucrative law routes. Um, and I kind of fell into comedy and documentary film and writing. I started writing mostly like almost satirically in a kind of at that, at that time, almost like a Stephen Colbert voice. Um, but I would try to do actual journalism that way. So I I think like something I wrote early on was a piece about this mine that had collapsed and killed miners, um, obviously because they were doing something very dangerous called retreat mining. But the uh, owner of the mine, mining company, like tr- lied and pretended there had been an earthquake, which there was just no evidence of. So I did something on that. Um, I'm, I didn't even, I wasn't even planning to talk about this. It's been, it's been years. I think I did that for the Huffington Post. And that was cool because it was a piece that actually had lots of information about what had happened, but was done in a kind of comedic way. So you were doing dark. like the Colbert thing where you were like, 
it was the miners' fault, or yeah, God it was where I was like, it was way. yeah, it was it was actually an earthquake. Yeah. It was oh, an you went with the story. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, this is like when you tell a joke and it's really not funny. So you had to be you had to be there. You had to be there reading the article. Or in the mind, yeah. yeah. Or in the mind, they yeah, but they may not have been as uh, amusing. It's hard to find that. I mean, that's a that's a real challenge for yourself as a writer to like. Okay, you know, twenty three men died in a mining collapse. I'm going to find the humor. Yeah. Well, it was obviously making. I mean, there is this interesting discussion about whether you can make anything into humor, and usually it depends on. Obviously, you can try to make anything humorous, but in terms of it being kind of ethical or moral. It usually depends on who's at the receiving end of the joke or who you're making fun of. Because obviously something making fun of the minors would have been sick and sadistic and not at all funny. But it's still it's still somewhat of a challenge because it's such stark material. But it's well, one it's of those things you have to laugh instead of cry or laugh and cry. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that is a really important question that seems to be getting brought to the surface more and more these days. I, just recently I was watching old clips of um, Patrice O'Neill and he was talking about um, rape jokes. Yeah, that's and, right. And the interviewer, I think he was on Fox actually, and the interviewer was like, dude, how can you find humor in that? And he said, look, comedians have a right, a responsibility to look for humor in everything. Right. I mean, that is what we do, right? And... I have to say, I mean, I agree with him. I grew up watching um, Carlin, you know, like that was, Carlin was my dad's sort of hero. And he brought home a Carlin record when I was eight or nine years old. Um, You know, and so it's interesting in the context of speaking with you, someone who's gone from comedy to political commentary and analysis. um, How do you... I mean, you could say that's a long, a, a huge gap between those two things, a lot of separation. Or you could say they're very similar. They're almost the same thing. It's just a question of tone. Yeah, I mean, I think that I still, hopefully, I try to be funny in what I do. So I've shifted from, um, I, I write much less now and I because I do my two podcasts. So I, 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 you know, I prepare for those, but I, I'm doing a lot more talking about politics and writing about politics. And I guess I see it as part of the same continuum in terms of the relationship between the silly or the humorous and the serious. Because even when, you know, on my podcast or on Useful Idiots, when Aaron and I are talking about stuff, we have to, we make fun of the people who we think have dangerous politics. Um, Because if not, it's just so it can be so deadly and such a downer. And there's so much of that in the world. I actually think it's, it's a, it's, I do think it's in some ways, not everyone, but I think that there's a very important role to play in making serious stuff entertaining. Um, Like different people have different lanes, but you know, you got to have, some people have to be doing it in a way that is, that lets people laugh. Um, Because if not, I think people will just be so depressed the whole time. Well, it also, I feel like, sacrificing humor as a political tool plays into the hands of the humorless who yeah. want to rule us. And, and I mean, I don't know much about your politics. It's if you're associated with Matt Taibbi and, um, you know, obviously there's a, 
I don't even know whether to call uh, his politics left or not, but I think anti-authoritarian, you know, we can yeah. agree on. He's more libertarian than I am. I'm more of a, like, class, Not, I mean, I'm more of a, just a leftist, I think, without the libertarian streak. But he and I definitely overlap a ton. Yeah. Yeah, and he uses humor a lot. And I think it's a... Oh, yeah, he's a very it, funny writer. I yeah. mean, it's a great... Um, it's a great weapon. Uh, one of the few weapons of the oppressed to use against the oppressors, right? Because yeah. by definition, they take themselves so fucking seriously that they make perfect targets. So when I feel like the left, and, and using these terms is problematic, of course, because, you know, what's left, what's right these days. Um, but the authoritarian left, by becoming... Humorless, I feel like they um, they d- disempower themselves. Yeah, and that's part of the problem with what's going on right now. Yeah, it certainly also feeds into the idea of the humorless left that has no fun. That's always making people wrong and chiding people and chastising people and the scold. Yeah. Um, so I, I definitely think it's it's uh, important to push back on that. And you know, we we want to like w- I mean it. To the extent that I have a political project, which sounds so pretentious right after I said that we sound like we're humorless scolds, um, <laughs> uh, you know, we have to make the we have to be making a case and we have to be uh, bringing people in. And one of the ways to do that is by making things fun and funny. Right. Was it Emma Goldman who said something about like, if I can't dance, I don't want to be in I your don't revolution. I want to be part of your revolution. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I feel that way about, you know, dancing as we can use as a metaphor for sex and uh, psychedelics and, you know, any kind of um, technology or substance or experience that liberates our thinking and opens up new possibilities. And I, I worry that American politics is sort of drifted into this humorless right, humorless left, where they're both sort of coming at right. it from a very authoritarian perspective. How do, yeah, how I mean, do you... I th- go, ahead, I th- go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think that it's, there's some people who kind of get off on being and are very self-righteous and almost get off on like organizer scolding or shaming or activist shaming where, you know, if you're having fun, you're not doing it right. And that's actually not the way to get people involved in the political process, shockingly enough. To make it sound joyless. Yeah. Um, do you remember a show called MASH? It's before my time, but I do know it's with Alan Alda, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that show was huge. I mean, I don't know the numbers, but I think it's probably one of the most popular shows ever on network TV yeah. in terms of audience numbers and how long it lasted and all that. And that show was incredibly subversive. It was right. extremely anti-authoritarianism, anti-authoritarian. It was anti-war. It was anti-medical establishment. It, it just undercut every kind of structure of authority. But it was funny right. and charming. And I, I think it did a lot. I don't know whether it was a reflection or an expression of the sort of zeitgeist of the 70s um, you know, in which I was a teenager. But I think something like that is so powerful, so much more powerful than sort of preachy nonsense. Yeah. I mean, getting back, like Stephen Colbert, you began talking about Stephen Colbert. 
I can't watch him anymore. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I almost didn't want to say it because I didn't want to, people to think I was a, a modern day, a present day Colbertian. Uh, no, I used to love him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I used to love him when he had the Colbert Report, and then when he started doing the night, whatever, whatever it's called now, uh, the late yeah, the show, Tonight Show, or something, the yeah. Tonight Show, whichever it is. Um, yeah, I find him. He's become kind of a parody of a of a a liberal, um, you know, wino mom. Almost <laughs> not not fun, not subversive at all. Just saying really obvious things about Trump. I mean, I'm very critical of Trump, but the way that certain people, let's call them like resistance libs or something, hashtag resistance libs, the way that they went after Trump was just embarrassingly ineffective and uh, missing the really important things that that he did that were bad. Yeah. Uh, so that was a you know a big kind of, I think, counterproductive and embarrassing uh, waste of political energy. Um, there was so much that, that you could have gone after Trump for. And it's so much of it was aesthetic. Right. And like behavioral and performative. And I think it actually undermined and undercut what could have been genuine resistance to him. So what stories do you think were missed because of concentration on the P-tape and, uh, right. you know, whatever nonsense? The walls are closing in. The walls are closing in. Um, well, I think his upward transfer of wealth, his tax, uh, you know, is like, I think, has unprecedented upward transfer of wealth that could have been focused on. Um, I think that even the way that certain things were focused on better than others. Um, you know, there was focus, I think, on immigration. But even that, uh, it it missed the story, I think, like the humanity of the people who were undocumented and coming here. And it was just almost a, a chance to, to nail Trump, which, again, is good. But, oh, another thing that they did that I thought was so terrible is that they would, you know, bad people will do the right thing maybe for the wrong reasons, but like a broken clock is right twice a day or, you know, someone like Rand Paul, who's awful on civil rights, winds up being good, good, I would say good on war stuff or civil liberty stuff. And so watching people mad at Trump for like shaking Kim Jong-un's hand, uh, when that, what was interesting about that moment is that, first of all, you want this guy who you call erratic, you say he has dementia, you call him Cheeto Mussolini, you want him to ratchet things up with Kim Jong-un, you want him to ratchet things up with Putin, they were always being like, get tough on Putin, it's like, I don't understand, you think Putin's evil, you think Trump's evil, they're both nuclear powers, and you want him to be this guy who is a buffoon, you want him to be more aggressive with this guy, what's, what's the end game there? And what was interesting about the Kim Jong-un thing is that uh, it was the complete inversion of what had happened when Obama said that he would meet with North Korea and you had these Republicans freaking out and which was ridiculous. But, you know, the Dems and Libs did the same thing with with Trump, which was just embarrassing. Yeah. Do you think the Americans political? Hmm, what's the word for it? The, the circus, the you know, the line from. Um, uh Oh, shit, now I, I just I had one of those moments where I'm halfway through a sentence and I forget who I'm talking about. Uh, the the musician, the, the quirky 70s musician, uh, fuck, you'll, you'll know. The quote is, uh, politics is the entertainment division of the military-industrial complex. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a good, that is a great quote. 
Poppy's yeah. entertainment. Yeah. Wait, who, what's the, who's the musician? He had a little black uh, beard. Fuck what did he play? Not guitar. Tiny Tim. No, no. <laughs> no, no, the serious music. Oh, Tim, man. Yeah. <laughs> he said Mash was deep, before deep your cu- time. Deep cut, yeah. They both uh, are, but I know. Uh, are, no, right? he was, uh, his, like, his son's called Dweezil Zappa, Frank Zappa. Oh, Frank Zappa, got yeah, it. Yeah, Frank Zappa yeah. said that. Anyway, yeah. if I edit it, I would edit that out. <laughs> yeah. No, keep it in. It's good authentic- authenticity. <laughs> it's Listen to Chris lose his mind. Um, yeah. yeah, anyway, the, sometimes I, I watch this. I mean, I pay way too much attention to politics, not as much as you do, but because I don't make any money from it. I write an occasional Substack right. thing. And, and I barely make money from it, but yeah. <laughs> We're not that you, different, you and I. You, you got a fancy microphone there. You, you definitely yeah. have one of those top shelf microphones. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes I watch it and it's like, why am I, why am I paying so much attention to this? This is all just a bunch of bullshit. This is watching the Harlem Globetrotters win right, over course. and over and over again. It's like the Democrats are the Washington generals. They're, they're both, it's corporate team A versus corporate yeah, team exactly. B. And the Democrats are just out there to make it look like it matters, to, to make yeah. people think their votes matter. And There's sometimes this- I get so fucking frustrated that it's all just nonsense, you know? Right. Well, I think that's an important part of the discussion, too. So that's something that you can you can expose and talk about um, when you're following politics. I do think it's very that's an important point. And one of the best books I've read in a while is is it behind me? I'm not sure on my bookshelf, but it's called Listen Liberal and it's by Thomas Frank. And it's uh, Listen Liberal. Whatever happened to the party of the people? Mm. And that goes I feel like. I, I kind of grew up thinking that Democrats were just spineless and inept. And really, it's that it's not that they can't do these things. It's that they don't want to do these things. And having the Republicans around is just a really great, convenient foil for them to pretend that they can't get things done. Right. Um, but, like you know, Manchin is a foil for Biden. Yeah. The rotating villain that is Manchin. Right. I mean, Man- Biden could, if he had any desire to do this, he, of course, could like twist uh, Manchin's arm. He could threaten to, to, you know, do things to West Virginia. He could take uh, Manchin off of committees. Uh, he could just do what LBJ did to the people who wouldn't go along with his program. But Biden doesn't actually want to do those things. And this is, I mean, this is so pathetic because Biden ran as the guy who could get things done. You know, Bernie was supposed to be the idealist who had no idea what he was doing, even though Bernie is called the amendment king because he's so effective at getting policy through through um, amendments, um, not to mention the way he just kind of revolutionized political consciousness and, and discourse through, you know, driving th- messages home like Medicare for all. But um, Biden was supposed to be able to get things done, work with Republicans, and he can't even work within his, in, his own party. I mean, it's absolutely pathetic. What was the point? What's the point of him? As you can, you may be able to tell, I, I was a slightly, slightly more positive about Bernie than than Biden. I, I'm a, I identify as a feminist Bernie bro. Yeah, I, you know, I met Bernie Sanders in 1983 when he came and spoke at my little college in upstate New York to oh, nice. about 40 people. Right. And you know, seeing him on the national stage now, he's the same guy saying the right. same things. You know, and and I mean that as a compliment. I don't right. mean I don't mean he you know, is inflexible. I mean, he was right then he's right now. Yeah. But 
What do you think about the argument that Bernie Sanders has no allegiance from either party and therefore if he were elected, he would be, you know, Jimmy Carter part two and just get nothing done? I don't really buy that because he has kind of famously worked across the aisle. Um, I actually think he probably has a lot more crossover appeal but you're talking about how he would actually govern, right? Not not getting him elected, but how he would be wor- able to work with. I, I just think that he has worked with. Yeah, it's true that neither party has. Uh, I mean, he's by he's basically a Democrat. He's not a Democrat, but he's kind of a Democrat. He caucuses with them. He obviously votes with them most of the time. But um, I think that first of all, him being the president would be so unprecedented that it would be hard to apply the paradigm to that. Mm. Like, I don't, you know, even just saying it would be like what happened to Carter, but I also think he's a much more skilled politician and much more, much shrewder than Carter was. Um, Could be, but he's also got Mitch McConnell blocking him. Yeah, he does. But, you know, first of all, Mitch McConnell blocks everything that Biden does. And and there's this story out now, which I I need to read up on more, but basically Biden was going to, give Mitch McConnell some judge, some anti-choice judge. I saw that. And yeah. he's, right. And like then, and for nothing, like McConnell actually said it was just a favor. He wasn't even giving him anything in return. It's so pathetic. And then he backed off on it, but it wasn't because of progressive opposition. It was because of someone else, I think because of Ram Paul or something. Uh, it's just, he's just a husk of a human being, Biden. He's such a disappointment. And I already thought he would be a disappointment. But yeah, of course there's opposition, but Bernie has been able to work with Republicans in the past. Um, so, and it certainly would be, I'd certainly rather someone saying inspiring things and advocating for people. Let's just say for argument's sake, he couldn't get stuff done because Mitch McConnell, which I don't necessarily think is true, but let's just say that. Then at least there'd be someone in there making good points showing people who to blame for their misery, which is, I think is the biggest thing that Bernie did. And a lot of people mistakenly equated him with Trump. But what they were tapping into was that Bernie was tapping into and Trump was tapping into people's anger and despair and pain. But the difference is Trump was saying, I feel your pain. You're being screwed over. Blame the Mexicans and the Muslims. And Bernie was saying, I feel your pain. You're being screwed over. Blame the blame the billionaires and uh you know the banks the pharmaceuticals the corporations um so i think even that in itself is a huge honestly just as a kind of training for people is really important because i think another mistake that people make is that people what did hillary call them um basket of deplorables you know this idea that you have all these irredeemables um when we can't afford to see them as irredeemables, first of all, even if you detest them and have nothing but contempt for them, you have to try to, it's the, the numbers require you to try to get people onto your side. Um, and I think Bernie was so good at that, is so good at that. I mean, you saw him at one of these town halls, basically like turn someone around who was, you know, blaming undocumented people for something. And he's like, well, who do you think you should blame uh, them? We should blame the uh, the bosses who don't pay taxes. And, blah, blah. and they're like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, plus the bird landed on him during the conflict. Oh, my God. I mean, I know. come on. What else? You, you know need? what I was surprised by is that the right wing didn't make more of a didn't make a bigger deal of this, which is that that happened to Castro right after the revolution. A dove landed on his shoulder, which people uh, were so excited about because it's like really important in Santeria. But uh, I was waiting for the hate for the haters to to bring that up. Of course, for me, that's yeah. not a bad thing, but it's a little too sophisticated, probably. Yeah, I maybe was yeah over. I was uh, when I was uh, uh, overestimating their historical yeah, trivia yeah. abilities. Yeah, when I was um, looking into your your background a little bit, I saw that you have some connection. You did a film about uh, Spain, La Memoria Saga. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I lived in Spain over twenty years. It's yeah. Um, are you? Do you have Spanish? background i saw you also did something about uh the civil war and cuba there there seems to be a theme yeah yeah i did i worked on a film about cuba called uh free to fly which is all about the embargo the blockade uh then i made this documentary about the spanish civil war called la memorias vaga then i made a documentary called commie camp about the summer camp i went to kinderland but um I'm not, I don't have any Spanish family, but I do have on both sides of my family people who were involved in the Spanish Civil War, obviously oh. on the anti Franco side. But my mom's godfather, as much as a secular Jew can have a godfather, was this guy, Ralph Fascinella, who was this, he became a well known artist. Um, he fought in the Spanish Civil War. My mom's dad tried to. He lied. He said he was 18, but he was only 16, so he couldn't. Um, my dad's uncle died there um and then my uncle my late uncle uh my mom's brother his wife her father also fought in the spanish civil war so a lot of people on all sides of family um so so your family's just like a very sort of politically aware intellectual jewish northeast kind of yeah we are like the woody allen stereotype in um what is annie hall where Mm. he's like so your family's very like strike oriented uh central park west socialist summer camp right uh Brandeis or Bryn Mawr? I guess it would have been Brandeis that he, but I was Wesleyan and Riverside Drive. Mm. But I am very much like the Upper West Side walking stereotype. <laughs> um, the summer camp I went to has like the bunks are named like uh, Harriet. You know, we don't have the bunks aren't named like numbers or Native American names or letters or anything. It's like Harriet Tubman, Joe Hill. Um, the Paul Robeson Playhouse. Oh, nice. We do the World Peace Olympics instead of Color Wars, obviously. And the teams are named after movements or organizations or people. So the year that I filmed at Kinderland, this documentary I made, the teams were Center for Constitutional Rights, uh, the Highlander School, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice, and Greenpeace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who won? Um, I shouldn't really say because I want people to, to watch the movie, but I will say that, uh, yeah, I'll leave it with the cliffhanger. Yeah. So, so getting back to, to Bernie Sanders and, you know, I, uh, I, I'm with you on that. I, I admire him and, and respect him, but I also bought two Obama t-shirts when he was elected and I haven't, I don't even know where they are. I haven't worn them in, you know, since whenever that was. Um, and I'm not saying that Bernie 
is a wolf in sheep's clothing the way I think right. Obama was or is. Um, but I despair that the American political system is salvageable. Yeah, a lot of people, when I do my shows, a lot of people will comment in the chats. Now, to be fair, the people who comment negatively are probably not the most representative, but there's a palpable anger towards Sanders that I understand. And people, speaking of sheep, of, of wolves and sheep clothing, people do often, certain people will often accuse him of sheepdogging for the Democrats. Um, this idea that he's kind of, you know, tricking people, like you were saying, into the belief that the system is salvageable and leading people to have faith in the Democrats. And I mean, the argument there, and I guess my, I think that's somewhat true, but my problem with it is that, and look, I'm, I'm performing at some Green Party event. I had Matthew Ho on my show, who's running for um, North Carolina Senate as a Green Party candidate or trying to. And the Democrats are up to all sorts of dirty tricks to, to try to get his name off the ballot. They, you know, there's a, a recording of uh, someone from the, obviously a Democrat or someone paid by the Dems who calls, there's a recording of this. He called someone who works for the, Green Party or is a Green Party member asks this person uh, if he meant to sign this petition getting Matthew Ho on the ballot and the guy's like yeah of course I meant to sign the petition I don't sign things unless I mean it and he's like who are you you're you're with the Green Party and the guy's like uh-huh yeah he's like okay and the guy's like we just want you to know that with abortion on the ballot, voting green is a, a vote for Republicans. I mean, I'm basically that's what I was saying. It was like the most unconvincing. Yeah, you're a Green Party guy telling someone to not vote green. Okay, okay, right. dude. But um, I think that I'm very. I don't know. Like, I don't know what the answer is. I think that the Democrats are. The, the leadership is certainly irredeemable. I get that people are disappointed with the squad. I'm disappointed with them half the time. I do think that we have to keep primarying Democrats. Um, my thing is that it's, I think one of the critiques of, of Sanders or the, or the belief in the Democrats is that, but for sheep dogging people into that party, we'd have revolution or we'd have a real like kind of thriving democracy and non-duopoly i just don't think that would happen i just think you get disenfranchised like disaffected people not voting and then all that means is it kind of shifts it to the right because the people who will be keep who will keep voting are the people who are uh not disillusioned and those people will vote right for the most part and um, why is that why why is it that people who engage skew to the right is that because higher intelligence leads to greater cynicism? No, I don't. I think that people who, well, there are two things that happen. And this I'm reminded again of Thomas Frank, who's such a great writer. And I really he, highly recommend. Yeah, he wrote books. What's Wrong with Kansas. Yes, right? he wrote What's Wrong with Kansas. And what was interesting about that is so What's Wrong with Kansas was looking at why the working class vote against their self-interest by voting Republican. Yeah. And that did really well and was on, you know, he was on MSNBC all the time. Then he writes, listen, liberal, whatever happened to the party of the people, all about how the Dems screwed over and abandoned their base um, in a more subtle way than the Republicans. Right. 
And that did not get him any love on MSNBC because, of course, no one wants to hear that at MSNBC because that's their model. You know, that's their brand is the status quo and Democrats as as usual. Um, I think that, you know, we can't underestimate so often people talk about why is the right so much more powerful? We can't underestimate the power of money. Um, now, there are some really rich people who are Democrats, but it's not the same as the infrastructure that's been created on the right with, you know, the Tea Party and AstroTurfed Alec, um, yeah. the Koch brothers. Um, but I think that really, you know, it's also just like really rich people are going to either buy politicians, get them into office, vote for them. And the people who feel powerless, I mean, that happens on the on the people who feel powerless, I think, are the ones who would, if they were going to vote, would vote. I don't know that the Democrats are so bad. So I was going to say would vote Democrat, but they, they certainly wouldn't vote Republican. You know, it occurred to me after I said it that I got the metaphor exactly wrong with Obama. Obama was a sheep in wolf's clothing. Oh, that's interesting. You mean in the way he presented himself vis-a-vis the Republicans? Yeah, change you can believe in, right? That we're going to go in here and we're going to really change things. And I'm black and I was born poor and my dad's from Africa. This is going to be a whole different game now. And that's why people believed in him. Yeah, but even his just aesthetically, I mean, he was so unwolf-like. And I feel I think I, a lot of people caught him understandable slack because he was a black man and anything he did was going to be seen as kind of violent almost or predatory angry or black um, angry black yeah. man. And so I think that, you know, he's so unwolfish. I see what you're saying and that he promised to be a change candidate and wasn't at all. So but he's so I mean, he's I don't. Yeah, I think it it works both ways. Yeah, a little bit. Like he was a, a what sucker. would it be? That that's what I never expected. I never expected him to be dumb, and it but just feels like he, he got outmaneuvered. Over he thought the I, Republicans were going to cooperate with him. See, like based on what? But I don't. That goes back to the Thomas Frank thesis about uh, you know lack of will as opposed to lack of ability. Like I don't think he wanted these things for the most part. I think he liked the the how convenient it was to make it look like the Republicans were, you know, intransigent. Um, and I think that, you know, what he did with like the public option, you know, why would you start there with so much giving away so much to, you know, yeah. pharmaceuticals? I think he's actually an extremely like dangerous uh, not obviously for the reasons that the people who are on the right said about him, like I wish he was that threat to the status quo, right. but he's so, I mean, he's, I feel very, I never thought he was going to be the savior that some people thought, but I didn't know he was going to be so bad. And he is, I have to admit, even someone like me who really has a lot of contempt for him and anger for him, I still sometimes when I'm, my guard is down, find him charming. Yeah, well, uh, he is charming. Yeah. He's, he's good looking. He's smooth. He's good looking, he, but he's like, he's good looking in like a nerdy way. I feel like the big ears really helps because <laughs> without the big ears, he'd just be too traditionally good looking. Yeah. And this makes him seem a little vulnerable and nerdy. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Thank God for the ears. Because you don't want someone so slick because that undermines their like relatability. Right. Um, 
Don't want to go all Denzel on us. Yeah. No, God forbid. That would be very distracting. <laughs> but um, he's, uh, yeah, he's, and you know, he's, he's awful. Like what he, he's left his, his mansion in Martha's Vineyard to do what? To like prevent a strike. What was an NBA strike? I know nothing about sports, but uh, to, to, to sabotage Bernie, to sabotage Keith Ellison and get like Thomas, Tom Perez to be the DNC chair, which was awful. Like that was that. And that's when, you know, I was I thought I was very cynical and critical of Obama. But I realized that even when I was very critical of his politics, I still had this very naive assumption that he had some kind of personal moral code. I don't know how mm. I could think that. It's like you're dropping drones. How much of a mensch is this guy going to be? But I remember I was really surprised when he pushed for Tom Perez over Keith Ellison. And this was after this was, I guess, in 2016 when they were um, trying to kind of throw an olive branch to Bernie supporters and be like, OK, we're going to let Keith Ellison, who, by the way, was one of the early people who predicted Trump would win the primary and got like George Stephanopoulos and Maggie Haberman literally laughed in his face when he said that. But uh, they were going to let him be the DNC chair. He ran unopposed. And then out of nowhere comes Tom Perez, who was Obama's labor secretary. The guy has the charisma of a wet. I don't even know what. I can't think of anything. Anything I'm going to say is going to have more charisma than him. You wet, don't like his big ears? Oh, uh, Perez's? Yeah. Well, he has a skeletor look in general. So if anything, he needs an opposite effect. He would need like All his right. ears pinned back to look more human. Um, but no, he's a uh, he that was I couldn't believe the vanity that went into that with Obama. Like he just really wanted his guy. He wanted to have his legacy. He didn't want the DNC chair to be someone who was representing the Bernie wing, you know, because he his lady. I mean, he he didn't like Hillary, but whatever. That was obviously his candidate. You know, he and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. What the hell? What the oh hell? Oh, my God. Yeah, that was ridiculous. Right. Oh, my and, God. And totally putting right. her thumb on the scale. Well, we're but, we're definitely talking about things that probably ninety percent of our audience doesn't know anything about. Yeah. But um, I wonder if you have ever heard of a guy named Brad Blanton. Mm-mm. Okay, he's a really interesting character. Uh, his daughter Carsey is a friend of mine, and uh, in fact, her her song "Smoke Alarm" is sort of the theme song for my podcast. Oh, is that the one at the opening? It's at the end. It's, oh, okay. uh, you know, hey, baby, what's the big deal? Say what you're going to say, feel oh, what you're going to feel. We're going to die one day. That's the whole right. thing. It's like, live your life. You're going to die. Right. I know you can't, you can't envision it. You can't believe it, but that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, anyway, her father wrote a book in the 70s called Radical Honesty. Huh. And his, he's a psychologist, and his thesis is that basically all our problems, personal and social, come about because we lie. We lie to each other. We lie to mm. ourselves. And so he has, for years, led these workshops uh, where people sit in, their, in a circle, uh, often naked, and speak totally honestly about themselves and each other and their feelings and all this stuff, right? Anyway, he ran for office for Congress in Virginia in the 80s, I think. It might have been the 90s. Um, and he ran against, uh, what was that guy's name? Like the Jewish congressman from Virginia, Eric Cantor. You remember him? Oh, yeah, yeah. He ran against Eric Cantor and he got like 30% of the vote or something. And then um, the Democrats 
refused to let him. He won the primary, but the Democrats wouldn't let him be affiliated with the party. And what was his name? Brad Blanton. So check out. um, Oh, yeah. There's a. Do you know uh, This American Life, the podcast? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So they did um, uh, two seasons. They had a TV show. And they did a segment on Brad Blanton. And it's fascinating. It's about when he's running for Congress. And so here's a guy who does not lie about anything. Right. Running for Congress. Wow. And it's, as a political junkie, you really should check this out. It's like 10 minutes, the segment. It's fantastic. It's so funny. Um, You know, it sort of points out the, the conundrum of how do you enter politics as an honest person like how can you do it i mean there there's have you ever see that movie with um what's it called um it's about uh, a guy who's a senator and he calls in a hit on himself because he hates himself so much he hates his life he hires an assassin to kill him and then while he's waiting to be assassinated he Tells the brutal truth. Is it Bullworth? Yeah, Bullworth. Exactly. Oh, it's Warren Beatty. Yeah. Warren Beatty, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there are a series of these films about an honest person in politics right. and how they get destroyed. Do you think it's possible for an honest, decent person to rise in the American political system and have any leverage? I mean, I think the closest we get to that is with Bernie. And look how they didn't. I mean, I'm I, again. This is why I go back to not really knowing the answer to this because on one hand, it's like, look, they didn't let him do it. They would not let him win. The other, on the other hand, it's like the fact that he came so close is kind of unthinkable. Um, and I don't know what like. Uh, oh, I'm so upset. I can't. Believe, you don't edit this show, so all my ums and my big spaces are going to be there. It's good, though. Makes me think on my feet. Um, <laughs> you, no matter what, you won't sound as bad as me. I can't remember oh, anyone's name I'm trying to talk about. Let's see. Like, I just... Uh, that that certainly is a part of it, right? Like, the better you are, the less pa- political power you'll be able to accumulate. You know, they'll right. kill you off before they let you be that high in the in the ranks. Um which is why I do think, and this sounds so lame, and I'm, and then so many people are going to hate hate on me for saying this, but I do think we just have to keep primarying people, and that you know, I would just rather I get people's frustration with the squad, but I would rather have people who are remotely movable than people with whom we have no chance of influencing. Mm. And so that's you think- kind of an indirect uh, answer to your question, but I guess what I was thinking about is that if we have a lot. Um, even if it's just members of Congress, you know, the larger the progressive um, group of people in Congress, the more we can demand things of them. Yeah. But can we demand things on a national level when the system is so skewed toward the red states? I was just reading this article in The Atlantic called America is Growing Apart. Have you read this? Mm -mm. It's pretty depressing and pretty. It's by Ronald Brownstein. And it's basically saying the convergence of mid-20th century American culture was an anomaly. And that the United States has, you know, since before the Civil War, essentially been two very different cultures, very different belief systems, different economies, you know, two different countries. 
sort of melded together artificially. And for a while, it there was sort of a, a convergence, was the term that he uses, that was fueled and supported by economic growth and growth in rights, civil rights, women's rights, and so on, and investment in education and infrastructure. But since you know the Reagan administration and all that's dried up and it's been going the other way, and so now these sort of natural fissures are starting to right. open up again. And that without a 180-degree turn in governmental policy the natural progression is to separate um, just based on the sort of um, nature of American culture. Hmm. So, you know, and when you look at the way the Supreme Court, you know, the, the, the electoral college, you know, all these things are skewed away from actual democratic popular will. You know, and oh, yeah. you were talking earlier about how Bernie and Trump are often sort of compared. And that made me think about how angry I get when I see the term populist demonized. Yeah. You know, I actually looked up the term populist. It means a political leader who responds to the will of the people. Like, how is that a bad thing? Yeah, there's again, I sound like Thomas Frank's like hype woman or something. But you got there's another great movie that he um sorry, a great book that he wrote called The People Know. And it's about anti-populism. And a big part of it is, is exposing how people use that term in a way that uh, wasn't at all the way it was intended. Uh, it's a great book. I think I have it behind me somewhere. But uh, yeah, people try to, people have demonized that word. They've turned it into a pejorative to mean almost fascist. Right. Yeah, and Hitler was a populist. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. So who who but, else yeah. do you admire? Besides, I mean, you talk about the squad a few times. Is I I can't figure out how I feel about uh, AOC, for example. Right. Half the time, I think I, I hear her talk, and I think, yeah, I really admire what she's saying, and she's speaking the truth. And then, and then sometimes, you know, and maybe it's a generational thing, but sometimes she just seems so woke, silly. Yeah. Uh, I just can't. Uh, resonate yeah I think so I mean I think it's like it can be alienating and I'm not sure who she thinks she's speaking to or who she's um bringing into the fold uh I do I mean one of the things the the reason I got I started podcasting basically was I uh used to do this show called Morning Jew uh (laughs) where we would uh it was started by this woman heather gold who's a comedian uh canadian but she's based in the bay area and she and i would look at three headlines and determine if it was good for the jews did you you play mika oh no i didn't no we were and she didn't play joe scarborough but it was obviously that title was a was a, a homage to them oh my god they're terrible people but um I, so we started doing that, and then someone at WBAI saw that show and liked it and uh, asked me to start hosting the morning show, which I did. And I'm not a morning person, so then I asked for my own show, which I got, the Katie Helper Show. So it started as a radio show, and then I turned it into a, a radio show that I turned into a podcast. And then it kind of flipped, and I, it was a podcast that I turned into a radio show. Um, and now... Post-COVID or during COVID, I started doing live streams. So I, I basically, my show is a video live stream that then has turned into a podcast and a radio show. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it's a good time. But uh, the, sounds like a lot of work. I don't know. It is. I mean, it's you're just you're, it's kind of chopping up. It's it's one stream that, and then there is a lot of editing that goes into it. Mm. Um, and for WBA, I take out the curses, and I have to record the. You're listening to the Katie Halper Show. You can hear the Katie Halper Show every Wednesday at what time? 3 p.m. on WBI 99.5 FM or WBI.org. But um, the re- I think something that really, like, to the extent that my podcast became popular within certain very small circles was that I was really speaking to... I was a woman. I was a fem. I am a woman. I'm a feminist. And I loved Sanders and really disliked Hillary Clinton. And something I focused on a lot was the weaponization of identity politics, mm. um, which I think can be used as a total distraction. I mean, famously, Hillary Clinton said this, and it still gives me trigger warning. Everyone, it was so gross. She was like, "Are breaking up? Is breaking up the banks going to end racism?" No. As if anyone had ever said breaking up the banks would end racism, and also as if the bank, the housing crisis wasn't actually an incredibly racialized one, which, mm. you know, disproportionately harmed um, uh, black people and Latino people, especially. Uh, and that is just a great example of how people use these things and intersectionality to hide behind them and actually pursue policies that disproportionately harm people of color, like disproportionately harm the very constituents that they claim to care about. Or Bernie Sanders, you know, I would always say he was the feminist candidate for various reasons, but one easy one is just that he supported the fight for 15, raising the minimum wage. Hillary didn't. The majority of of people who are minimum wage earners are women of color. So if you care about women's issues and you care about racial justice, obviously you want to raise the minimum wage. She didn't, he did. Just a shorthand or war. I mean, Bernie's not as anti-war, anti-imperialist as I would like him to be. He's certainly far, like far and away, much more of a dove than Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton. I'm not to damn him with faint praise, since Hillary Clinton is such a hawk. But he certainly was better. He's been great on Yemen, and he's actually been. And I, I know a lot of my fellow lefties are think not far enough, but he's been very ahead of the curve on Israel. Mm-hmm. You know criticizing Israel more than others. Uh, I know a lot of people are mad that he's not pro-BDS, but he doesn't want to make it illegal. Uh, What's BDS? Oh, sorry, boycott, divest, sanction. It's a kind of civil... uh, It's a a campaign to kind of the ideas like with South Africa. So so it's not BDSM without the masochism? No, no, it's not. Although I'm sure someone could argue that there's there's something comparable there. But no, it's just boycott, divest, sanction, much more kosher. Or not, depending on who you ask, (laughs) than BDSM, actually. Um, But uh, this goes back to the, the, the issue of wokeness with AOC. I don't think AOC uses wokeness to push policies that disproportionately harm people of color, the way that lots of Democrats do. I do think sometimes, though, it can be almost like an easy way out. Like, you don't have to focus on the substance because you're just talking about centering. It's like, what does that mean? I know I know what it means, but what does that actually, what impact does that have? Right. And um, I think it probably reads as bullshit to most people. But, but a big problem is that we only see people who are part of the establishment on, in the media, the people who are 
in the media or on the media are the ones who are part of the establishment. So then what happens is you see someone with whom that resonates, or they'll say it resonates with people. It may resonate with them, but they don't represent most people. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a part of a huge issue that's happening where, you know, if you've got a media landscape that in its entirety might be representative of 40 to 50% of the American public at this point, right? Unlike Walter Cronkite probably represented 80%. Do you mean of, like demographically or what yeah, do you mean? Politically. I mean, in terms okay. of resonating, you know, the, the, I mean, how many people vote, right? It hovers around 45, 50% of eligible voters, right? So that means at least half eligible voters are like none of these, none of the above, right? None of right. these people represent me. So you've got the entirety representing around half, and then that's super fractured, super sort right. of micro um, split. Um, yeah, it, so, so is it, is it a, a process of estrangement? Are people just more and more estranged from what they're seeing in media? And then we have this siloization, right? So people are like, people who agree with me, tune into my podcast. People who agree with you, tune into your right. podcast. So nobody's getting opposing views. Like, where does this go? Have you, do you ever look at it from, from on high and go like, okay, what, how does this process play out? Because you talked about earlier about how some people are sort of angry, um, you know, or disagree with some of your perspectives because they say, well, we need a revolution, Right. Yeah. We need to hit. Is it like dealing with an addiction? Do we need to hit rock, rock bottom? bottom? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I tend part of the problem I have with that is that I'm not I would feel more comfortable making that argument if I were closer to rock bottom. How close are we and how do we know? I mean, I personally sorry, but like if I were personally struggling more. Oh, I see what you mean. Right. But also, that's kind of a cop out, honestly. I can, I'm tired of that, that thing that's like if you, it's almost like the identity politics of, of personal experience. Like, you can have an idea. I mean, it, it, would feel, it would feel weird for me if I were a billionaire telling people that, you know, it has to all crash and burn before we can get better, that it has to get worse before we can get better. It, that would feel weird because it's like, well, easy for you to say. You're not living paycheck to paycheck. But I don't know. the. I mean, it reminds me of your book, right? Which is uh, not that you say crash and burn or anything, but the idea of it, of the directionality or non-directionality of it. And you mentioned Stephen Jay Gould. And he's someone who I actually, before he died, he spoke at Wesleyan. And I remember he gave such an interesting talk about non-directionality and how things don't necessarily... Uh, improve or things aren't pre or like evolutionarily preordained mm. which may be a weird combination because it's religion and evolution but and he gave the example of uh like the battle of gettysburg and how that could have gone either way um and which i find comforting in a weird way because the <laughs> truth is There are, like, I guess I find it comforting because it means that things can have an impact, even if we don't know what the impact is. Um, and I guess I just feel like historically or for various reasons, um, when things 
get worse. It's it's I think the thing that moves the like forces the government's hands isn't when things get worse, it's when there's like a threat of something. Um when people have organized. I mean, I have a I talked about this with my late uncle who was a major influence on me. And he was saying, you know, he rejoined the CPUSA, the Communist Party, at like 70. And uh, he was a big, he was an organizer. He was a SALT for, you know, United Auto Workers. A SALT is someone who, like, joins to, to um, organize. Like, they're, mm. they're doing it for a union, basically, to organize other workers. Um, and he was a big, uh, he really rejected the idea of kind of... Um, accelerationism that it doesn't get better until it gets worse because he thought that looking at u.s history especially you know things when when you have a, a, a right wingers in power that just makes it so that workers can organize less and he didn't really he didn't have like delu delusions about how good democrats were at all but the idea that when things are worse it doesn't necessarily have the people rise up uh it just has people with less power and they lose certain gains. I mean, we saw that with Reagan, but I don't know who knows. Maybe the whole point is that we don't know what the future is and that the paradigm from the past doesn't apply. I do think we're at this weird moment. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I had Richard Wolf on my show and I had mm. Chris Hedges on my show and they're both like, wow, this shit is dark. I mean, they didn't yeah. say that, but that's I'm I'm. I'm using more scatological Chris language. says that to, like weekly. Every time he writes an essay, it's like trying to show how I know, dark yeah. this is. Yeah, yeah, he says that weekly. But he's always right. Yeah, I, I know. And then Richard Wolff is always saying how capitalism is in crisis. And it is. But I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know what direction it's going to go. You know, I was driving um, from the city to upstate where I am right now. And it was like pouring and there was some water coming up on the side of the road. And I got this sense. I was like, this is so scary what we're going to encounter, what's already happening with climate change. And I, I had like a visceral fear of it. I'm like, this is, we, how are we not doing more about this? And it's not healthy. I mean, speaking of, you know, I think of your book again and all the stuff about like evolutionary behavior. But, you know. It's not that healthy to be in the fight or flight mode all the time or it's not or the uh, feel like you're under threat. But we and that's certainly not a way to build political awareness or political activism or change like through fear. And w which goes back to what we were saying earlier, which is why I think you have to have the joy in there also. If you mm. want to attract people, you know, what is it you get more? Um, honey, oh. what is it? Yeah, more, flies with honey. I'm kind of mixing more, my metaphors here, like yeah, carrot and stick. You know, right? There's something about flies. You get more flies with honey than with than vinegar. vinegar. Yeah, but but then you also get more flies with shit than you do with honey. So oh, well, there goes that idea. Then <laughs> then we're then we're gonna then we're on a great course. Exactly. And we're right. We're at, we're exactly where we need to be. But I just remember being like, this is scary, and this is gonna happen. Like this is I'm just on a road that has a torrential downpour on it and it's kind of scary it was scary almost like in a way that when you're it reminded me of like a water slide but without the fun part just you know mm -hmm. you know when you're on a ride do you ever have that feeling you're like oh i'm really gonna die like you know rationally you're not going to but it feels like you're going to fall off yeah and it was a little bit like that it was like beautiful but it was really scary 
And I was like, if I were rational, I'd be aware of this all the time. Yeah. But, but also, I'm not, that's not politics. Politics is not one person being scared all the time, getting other people to be scared. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, and it's well, interesting. It's not organizing, that, I should say. It's interesting to think about how the macro reflects the micro, right? You know, getting back to Carsey Blanton's song, You're Gonna Die yeah. One Day, right? Like, you know, maybe the quintessential human experience or, or characteristic is our capacity to, to ponder our mortality, which apparently, mm. as far as we know, no other creature does. Right. And that twists us up into all sorts of shapes of delusion and denial. But it's interesting in our lifetimes that we're looking at this sort of global mortality. Right. Um, and I think it's the first time we've done that. I mean, as a kid, I remember being worried that the Soviets were going to shoot right. you know, nuclear bombs at us. But that was like, a, it's going to happen or it's not kind of thing. It's not like okay, the missiles are in the air and they're getting closer right. year by year by year. Yeah, and, right. You know, yeah. It's a very different experience. It's like a trigger is going to be pulled or not as opposed right. to this st slow and steady, inevitable, right? Yeah, and just watching. I mean, I've been reading, you know, as you have and anybody over the age of 25 probably, we've been reading that we're reaching the point of no return any minute yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. You know, but if we act now, we can still right. stave off the worst of it. But yeah. like, at what point do we have you heard of the Dark Mountain Project? Mm -mm. It's um, an organization of um, environmental scientists and philosophers and creative people of various sorts who have concluded that we have passed the point of no return. Wow. And it's no longer about figuring out how to stop it the ship is sinking right and at some point you drop your bucket and say okay we're not going to bail ourselves out yeah. of this mess let's start talking about lifeboats let's start looking right. for the nearest island and the longer we're down here in the hold splashing around trying to bail it out the you know we're, we're losing valuable time sure. it's it's sort of a taboo thing to think about or talk about but i feel like we're well past the point of no return what do they say we should be doing? Looking at ways to soften the blow of the inevitable. So new types of social organization, thinking about vertical farming in, in urban areas, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, looking at how we can reorganize into sort of self-sustaining inter... Like what you and I talked about on your podcast um, when right. you were asking for sort of actionable lessons from the past, right? Organizing into groups of people who can take care of each other and are relatively right. independent and able to survive off grid. Um, I think that's, ba I mean, I'm no expert on the Dark Mountain Project, but I think that's basically what they're saying is like, stop being distracted by pretending it isn't happening. It's yeah. happening. So now let's talk about how to respond to it. Is the earth going to be habitable or? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. How long do we have? I have to decide <laughs> if I want to have kids. <laughs> well, you're talking to the wrong person. You know, my, my feeling is my not having kids absolves me of all my other yeah. environmental crimes. I can fly right. around and 
use as many plastic bags as I want because I haven't had spray any ozone tips. right up into the sun. Right. It just gives yeah. me a get out of jail free card. You know, yeah. if you have kids, then then you're on the hook. I don't know. Right. Sounds yeah. a little Malthusian. We know you don't like him. <laughs> I wonder if he had kids. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> oh, question. Oh, Tommy. Hey, yeah. listen, thank you for doing this. This is, Yeah, of course. Uh, this was this really is fun. fun. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Uh, next time I'm, I'm in the New York area. Yeah, definitely. I'll hit you up. If you're around, we can go drink some wine. and Yeah. And you should come out. on my show. The you you seem like I, what I like about you is you is you're very knowledgeable about politics and, you know, you're in this sort of millennial age group, but you'd seem like you're probably unoffendable. Yeah, that's I'm my, pretty unoffendable. I think that's true. Yeah. I mean, your comedy background has to sort yeah. of, you know, inure you to that kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 I am, too. I I I, I don't see the point of offense. Like, right. what, what's the fucking point? It's a power play. Right. I agree, yeah. yeah. I used to be much more offendable. I was kind of cringe when I think about it. But um, are you drinking a beer, by the way? Yeah, it's uh, 8.30 p.m. Say, here. Uh, oh, wait, where are you? Tbilisi, Georgia. Right, Tbilisi, right, yeah, okay, yeah, got it. Yeah. How, uh, what, it's, that sounds like an interesting place, Georgia. Yeah, it's pretty interesting right now. Uh, you know, given the the history with Soviet invade or Russian right. invasion, you know, there's about twenty percent of the country is currently occupied by right. Russia, and uh, yeah, it's front lines. I mean, shit gets weird. This place is going to go up in flames pretty fast. Yeah, and people here know that, so it's very sort of radicalized, and and people are very politically aware. Yeah, well, it'd be nice if if the, I mean, this is a whole other discussion we'll have to have another time but uh be nice if the u.s uh wasn't like in my opinion fighting a escalating a proxy war yeah we didn't even get into that right uh the ukraine i i got in so much trouble when when putin was sort of threatening to invade right i did a podcast where i basically said like you know look he's probably going to go into the donetsk region and take over some Areas that already speak mostly Russian and have already been occupied by Russia for the last 12 or 14 right. years or whatever. And, um, yeah, people were not happy about that. It turned out I was wrong. I thought it was going to be a one-week flash-in-the-pan thing. Right. I didn't know he was going to go for Kiev and all that. Um, right. But, um, yeah, it's it's an interesting situation. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm 60. I just turned 60 a couple months ago. So I've watch this happen Lots over and over again right. and you know to, w- with differing degrees of obviousness like you know iraq war one totally obvious what was going on iraq war two even more so right um, this one to me is a little more nuanced um and uh, i had a friend on the podcast is, is my oldest i heard friend. that one oh, yeah, did you? Well, with my yeah he's yeah he has a great accent like not like ESL accent. I just don't know what to read. You guys are from Connecticut. Yeah, yeah. But we he sounded up. like I don't know what his accent it was. I liked his voice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's. I mean, he's you know American. He was born right. in the U.S. Know, yeah. But but his mother is Ukrainian. His father's Polish. Right. And uh, yeah, he's got a lot of history in that region. 
But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, the proxy war, you know, the Spanish Civil War was a proxy war, right? They were sort of testing out their yes. weapons in preparation for World War II. Yeah. And uh, so it makes me but wonder But it was a civil war as opposed to this war, which is so, in my opinion, inevitably like... Uh, I mean, that's a war that had they been armed more, they could have won the, um, the loyalists, the Republic. Whereas in this case, I don't think it's possible. So to me, it's just escalating and it's like sacrificing, you know, I, I think it's, you know, Ukrainians are being used as cannon fodder for geopolitical strategic reasons. And you were, everyone, so many people were wrong about Putin, but so was Zelensky, to be fair. I mean, it wasn't like people were just talking out of their asses and, and being ideologues. Um, and we should be always skeptical of the, of the, you know, intelligence community and the security state. Um, but uh, I think that no matter what you think of Putin, the concern should always be with uh, negotiation. And that's so clearly not the priority of the United States um, military industrial complex or a media industrial complex. I mean, having it was so weird watching these reporters basically ask Biden and his spokespeople why they weren't calling for a no fly zone. Mm-hmm. And it was so weird seeing, like, you know, seeing the military being like, okay, guys, you need to chill. We're obviously not going to do that. But the media was so um, war happy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is that just because it gets more clicks and more revenue? Or, you know, the, the sponsorship by, you know, General Electric bringing right. good things to life. I mean, there are obvious economic interests there. But then it also seems like on the other side, there's sort of a media weariness with the war right now. It's no longer top of the hour. Right. Um, yeah, now it's just January 6th. Yeah. Yeah, really important stuff, which everyone acknowledges isn't going to make a difference. But no, I think that, you know, even the New York Times said kind of like, okay, what's the end game here with Ukraine? Right. Um, Which was surprising. But I've just been horrified by the Putin as Hitler language because the takeaway from that is that there's no room for negotiation. You're dealing with a madman. And what, again, what should we be doing? You know, they did that with Saddam Hussein. Um, So. Yeah, my big I guess my big message is like you don't have to like Putin at all to want negotiation to happen if you care about Ukrainian people. Not yeah. to mention the whole world and how people are going to be. I mean, this is such a shit show and the the sanctions and what's happening with um oil and what's happening with food and crops. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be a very strange year. I mean, every yeah. year I think it can't, it, you know, it's going to get, go back to normal and it just keeps right. ratcheting up. A friend of mine used the the image of we're circling the drain. Yeah. You know, and it's just every year it goes faster and faster and tighter and tighter. It does feel like we're entering into some sort of vortex. It's pretty yeah. strange. Yeah. Well, Katie, thank yeah, you for your time. Yeah, we're ending on a happy note. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, this has been great. Yeah, I'll, I'll insert some sort of joke here at the end yeah, or something. Yeah, but I'm pumped. Yeah, but I'm pumped. Yeah, we didn't even talk about your father, the psychiatrist. Oh yeah, it's true. Yeah, He's, and what kind yeah. of weird kids are raised by psychiatrists? He was very um, 
he started out as a as a an immunology. He was very biochemical, so he's very psychopharmacological. Right. Um, in fact, I always joke that like my dad and Aaron's dad, Gabor Mate, should, we should have a reality TV show where they fight about <laughs> how to fix someone. Um, not that yeah. either would say fix, but um, <laughs> yeah, my mom's and my mom's a novelist. This is again the I'm I'm the product of a mixed marriage: a Bronxian mom and Queensian dad. My mom's mm. a novelist and retired English professor. My dad's a psychiatrist, total absent-minded professor, mad scientist type. Um, so he's not like a Freudian or, you know, he's not, I didn't grow up with that type of, um, presence, right? but, right. uh, very entertaining. We'll wear my mom's coat by accident when he leaves the house. Like that's how absent-minded he is. <laughs> um, but yeah, we didn't talk about abortion, but next oh, time. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's another great topic to end on. Yeah. yeah. To terminate on, but I'm bump. There you go. There's there you the go. Joke. There we got that joke. joke. We got that. We squeezed it in right under the wire. At least like we you didn't should be go doing more with than abortions. Thirteen weeks. One. Yeah. 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 I'm kind of an absolutist on that in the in the sense that I I don't think human life is sacred. I'm yeah. sorry. I mean, I, th- maybe that makes me an outlier, but I if human life is sacred, I think other life is what makes sacred. you an outlier is saying it out loud. Honestly. Yeah. If human life is sacred, yeah. then what the fuck are we doing? I mean, you know, like people right, are sleeping course. in the street. We're dropping bombs in Yemen on wedding parties. Like, right. Well, the, the people who I have no res- I mean, people who are like, the truth is most people don't believe it's, it's, a, it's a totally sacred life because they wouldn't believe in exceptions for rape and incest. Now, I'm glad they do. I'm not trying to encourage that, discourage them from that. But um, the people who have absolutely no moral like to stand on are the people who are for the death penalty right. and um, anti-abortion, anti-choice, let's just call them, and uh, also don't care about, like, actual born people. Like, if you're not, if you're a Catholic and you're anti-death penalty, I don't want you to be deciding whether or not a woman has the right to choose, but I kind of see maybe you have a moral, some 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 morality, moral consistency, yeah. I yeah. mean, I disagree with you, but I... That's not, it's not on its face, obvious hypocrisy. Yeah. Um, no, I agree. I, I think I, I respect those people, like the sort of, uh, what do they call liberation theology? Yeah, right? exactly. Like, yeah. 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 Romero, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. named after a priest who is a liberation theologist, oh, who nice. is a friend of my father's. And, um, but I have great respect for that. But, um, you know, clearly the way we live, human life isn't sacred and right. neither is any other life. I mean, it's. Yeah. Anyway, but that's another that's another issue. You know, what would be yeah. fun would be to have a podcast where you have to argue the opposite position of what you believe. I actually had a, early on, I guess it was 2015. It must have been. I did a women's like a, a debate between a live taping of my podcast, the Katie Helper Show at this cool venue in Brooklyn. I have to I don't even know if it's still around the Brooklyn Commons. It's where WBAI's station is the same building. And um, I had women for Sanders and women for Hillary. And the first thing I asked them was I had them make the case for the opposite person. Mm. Always a good exercise. And more more important now than ever when people just can't even imagine the other position. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a good idea. Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Well, I'm going to finish my beer. You you go have breakfast. I'll finish my coffee. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Thanks, Katie. Thanks so much. Yeah. Bye. 
He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. Doesn't ask for much. A little music and a soft touch. Why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a birdcage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up, but give it a rest. You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation? Running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say. When everyone we've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away. We're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. We're gonna die one day. So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms, and if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.